It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be continuing our series in Genesis, our series on origins. And this morning we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. And as you find your place in your Bible or on your device this morning, I'd encourage you to keep it open. We'll be going back to it again and again. As we think about Genesis 2, 14 through 17, we're going to be thinking about the origin of work. Now, the last time we were in the origin series, it happened to be on Mother's Day, and we looked at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, the origin of Sabbath. So that's right, moms, you guys got rest. Dads, you guys get work. Uh, make of that what you will. Now, of course, being made in the image of God, man is generic here for all humanity. Being made in the image of God means that we were all created for, we were all purposed to work. As we look at our passage this morning, we're going to break it down under three headings. First of all, we're going to look at Genesis 2, 4 through 7 and 15, and we're going to consider purposeful work. Then we're going to look at 8 through 14, and we're going to consider a beautiful home. And then thirdly, we're going to look at 16 and 17, and we're going to consider a defining command. So purposeful work, a beautiful home, and a defining command. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. God made man to work and gave us purposeful work, a beautiful home, and a defining command. God made us to work, and as he did, he made us a work of art, and he gave us purposeful work, a beautiful home, and a defining command. Let's look then at Genesis 2, starting at verse 4. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord, that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth, and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, on this morning, in the midst of storms and a question around whether we would have electricity, we thank you for your bountiful provision. As we turn our hearts now to your word, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills. By the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son, I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider together purposeful work, purposeful work. We're going to be looking here at verses 4 through 7 and verse 15. When we get to Genesis chapter 4, we're in a new section, a new chapter of the story, and the author announces this in two ways. The first way is this phrase, these are the generations of. These are the generations of. This phrase is used 10 times in the book of Genesis, and it's designed to give structure, to give order to the whole book. Each time it's used, it's introducing a new section, and it functions like a zoom lens, zeroing in and choosing a new topic, a new lineage, a new person to be able to focus our attention. But secondly, the name of God here changes. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, God has been referred to just as God in the English. It's Elohim in the Hebrew. And this is the God who has created all things out of nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power. But here, the name changes from God to Lord God. And that word Lord is the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the covenant name that God gives to his people. It's the covenant name that signifies the promise that God will be with his people. And so by putting these two names of God together, Moses is telling you that the God who created everything, he created the heavens and the earth, is also the God who gave you his covenant name. The God who is transcendent and all-powerful is also your God, the God who draws close to you. He is the Lord God. And in verse 7, the Lord God creates man. And now if you've been reading along from the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, you get here and you're thinking, wait, didn't God already create man? Back in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God created humanity. He created humanity in the image of God. He created them male and female. We were created as royalty in Genesis chapter 1. God's co-regents. We were created to have dominion over creation and to reign. 
So why now this second account? Why this second story? Well, some would say this is just bad editing, right? Well, there are these two stories out there, and the redactor kind of happened to put these two together, and, you know, we really don't know what's happening here. But I think that Moses here is giving you a second perspective, right? Genesis 1 gives you the 30,000-foot view, and Genesis 2 gets up close and personal. Genesis 1 gives you a summary, and Genesis 2 gives you the details. Genesis 1 states fact, and Genesis 2 describes the process. Do you know why God gave us two eyes? By taking those two images together and holding them in our brains, you can now see what? You can now see in three dimensions. And that's what Moses is doing here. He's giving you two stories so that you can see a fuller account. It's what God does with the Gospels, right? There are four Gospels to give you four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. It's the same thing that happens in a court trial, right? As lawyers are gathering as many eyewitnesses as possible to give you a multifaceted account so you can see the fullest possible version of the story. There are two accounts. And what does Genesis 2, verse 7 emphasize? Let's focus on verse 7 here. Then the Lord God formed the man. He formed the man. That word form is a word that could be translated fashion or shape. The idea is a potter at a potter's wheel shaping the clay. This is the craftsmanship of Yahweh. This is an artisan who's creating something that's beautiful. And by this word formed, Moses is saying to you, he's saying you are a work of art. Not a piece of work. You are a work, you are a work of art. It's the same idea that we have in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where uh, Paul writes, for we are his workmanship. And that word workmanship comes from the Greek poema where we get our word poem. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's handiwork. You see, evolution says that man is a coincidence, that we climbed out of the primordial ooze by chance, right? But God says man is no freak accident right? Man is the result of Yahweh's careful craftsmanship. He's formed. And what is he formed from? He's formed of the dust from the ground. We're dust. And this points to our humility. In Genesis chapter 1, we're created in the image of God. We are royalty in Genesis chapter 2. We're a work of art. We're beautiful, but we're created out of dust, right? And this points to our frailty. After the fall in the curses, God says, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, God knows that our structure is dust. 
There are two common mistakes in the world. One is that humanity is demeaned as junk. And Genesis 2 says, no, you're created. You're a work of art. But the second problem that we have in the world is that humanity is grasping for God's throne. And Genesis 2 says, no, you're made from dust. You see, Genesis 2 talks about both beauty and humility, craftsmanship and frailty, image and dust. We're created from the dust of the ground. But then, and breathed into his nostrils. Breathed into his nostrils. Do you ever think of God being distant, formal, removed? God's transcendent after all. Moses here is showing you that creation was an act of intimacy that God breathes into man's nostrils. Do you know how close you need to be to breathe into somebody's nostrils? A thought experiment this afternoon. Find someone, preferably someone that you like, and try to breathe into their nostrils. How close do you have to be? You have to be face to face, right? This is not a watchmaker God who's distant and removed. He breathes into your nostrils. And by the way, do you know that there are only two things in all of Scripture into which God breathes? One is man. Do you know what the other is? It's a Scripture, right? That all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And what does he breathe into man's nostrils? The breath of life. You see here, Moses is saying, you are a work of dependence. You only have the breath of life because the Lord God gave it to you. In fact, it's not just, it's not just humanity's first breath that is a gift. We know that every breath is a gift from God. You see, being a creature means that we are dependent. We exist because God grants us life. Life comes from Him. So Genesis 2-7 is a picture. It's a picture that says you are a work of art. You're a work of art, but you're also a work of humility, and you're a work of intimacy, and you're a work of dependence. Now, in that context, verses 5 and 6 might seem a little bit odd. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, verse 6, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then you get to verse 7, and God makes man. Why include these two verses here? These verses have been used to say it didn't rain until the flood and to argue for the age of the earth and to talk about providence in creation. But I think this is setting up the reason that God made man. Can I get that slide, first slide, Andre? 
You see, it sets up here that there are two circumstances. There are two circumstances. What are the circumstances? That there's no bush of the field and no plant of the field had yet sprung up or had yet sprouted. And why is that the state of the earth at this point? Because there are two deficiencies. And what are those deficiencies? That there's no rain in the land, uh, 5b, and what? There's no one to work the ground. And so with those two deficiencies, God then gives two provisions, right? Yahweh caused a mist to water the ground, verse 6. And verse 7, he created man. And you see, those provisions match up with the deficiencies. These verses are here to tell you why man was created, right? Man was created to fill a lack, There was something in creation that wasn't working just right, and so God creates man for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to work. There was no one to work the ground, and so God creates man to work. Thanks, Andre. And then he fulfills that purpose in verse 15. Look down at verse 15 with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it. You see, he was created with a purpose in verse 7, and then in verse 15, he was put in the Garden of Eden to fulfill that purpose. He was created to work. This is the origin of work. Do you know how radical this is? In every other origin story, work is an act of oppression. You see, in other ancient Near Eastern origin stories, there was this cosmic battle between the gods. And the winning gods took the losing gods and said, hey, you have to do all this work. It's a demeaning task that nobody wants to do. And the losing gods said, well, (laughs) I've got an idea. We'll create humanity and they can do all this demeaning work, this nasty nuance. They can do that for nuisance. They can do that for us, right? That's the creation story. That's where work comes from in every other ancient Near Eastern account. But think about evolution. Evolution is about the survival of the fittest, right? And those on top, those in power, oppress the lowly by giving them work. You see, in every other origin story, work is somehow an act of of oppression. It's a nuisance. It's demeaning. But in the Bible, work is what you were designed for. Work is your purpose. It's God's perfect plan. Before the fall, God created you for a task. And that task is designed to give you meaning and satisfaction. There is dignity in work, the Bible says. It's a noble task. It's part of being created in the image of God and having dominion. Why? Because God works. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Did you know that there will be work in the new heavens and the new earth? Some of you suddenly feel very sad uh, right now. But don't worry, I I don't mean work as you know it today. It's not that kind of work that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. 
You see, work, as you know it today, is tainted and corrupted by the fall. It's work under the curse. Work today is a mixed bag. Yes, it's still your purpose and design, but it can feel meaningless and inefficient, exhausting, consuming, competitive. Work can feel like running up a downward escalator or swimming upstream against the current. It can feel like fixing something only to find it broken again. Work can feel, as you engage in work, you can feel the frustration and the futility and the failure of work. But you see, in the new heavens and the new earth, work will again be what it once was in the garden. It will be unhindered and meaningful and deeply satisfying. It will be pure creation. It's that feeling of joy that you get when you finish that enormous project, that enormous task, and you know it was just what was needed. In fact, the best word to capture this now would be adventure. Adventure. It's the thrill of discovery, the joy of achievement, the satisfaction of invention. So yes, there will be work in the new heavens and the new earth, unhindered, meaningful work, the kind of work that you were designed for. You see, Moses is saying, You're a work of art. You're a work of humility. You're a work of intimacy. You're a work of dependence. And you were designed to work. But secondly then, we have a beautiful home in verses 8 through 14. So in 5 through 7, God creates man for the purpose of work. And in verse 15, he puts him in the garden to work. But verses 8 through 14 are this insertion, this interruption here. And and this insertion is important. And verse 8 summarizes what's happening in verses 8 through 14. And then it's unpacked in 9 through 14. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now that word garden in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word from which we get paradise. The word from which we get paradise. Garden is paradise. It's where Milton gets his title of paradise lost. And Eden in the Hebrew could be translated luxury or dainty or delight, right? You see, this language of Garden of Eden is oozing with beauty. This is a paradise of luxury and delight. And he tells you what that looks like. Look at verse 9. Uh, there are two trees that are plant, that are, there are trees that are in the garden, and all of those trees are pleasant to the sight and good for food. And in verse 10, this garden, this paradise, is watered by a river that flows out of Eden, and that river becomes four rivers. 
Now remember, the original audience of the book of Genesis would have been the second generation Israelites. And the second generation Israelites had just wandered through the wilderness, wandered through the desert for four years. And for four years, for 40 years, it was longer than four years. For 40 years, right? And so for them to get this picture of a river that becomes four rivers, a land that is watered by its own land, where water for them would have been scarce. It's a mind-blowing picture. This is the source of life. A garden that is watered by its own river would have been extravagant and luxurious. Verse 11, there's gold in the land, right? So it's not just water for life, but there's gold in the land. This is extravagant riches. I feel like a commercial here, but wait, there's more, um, right? Verse 12, that gold is good gold. It's not that bad gold, it's good gold. And there are these precious stones. There's bdellium and onyx stone here. So you have trees and water and gold and precious stones. It's a picture of great wealth and luxury. This garden is thriving and lush, and abundant. And verses 13 and 14 tell the names of these four rivers, and it's saying to you, this place is real. It's not mythical. It's not too good to be true. It's not a figment of your imagination. This is a physical garden existing in time and space. For just a minute, picture in your mind the most beautiful place that you've ever been? Is it the ocean? Is it the mountains? Is it the lush green that you see? Moses is saying the Garden of Eden was better. The Garden of Eden was better. And this, this is the home that the Lord God gives man. And this tells you something about the character of our God. You see, the Lord God is a God who delights to lavish extravagant gifts on his children. He's a God who delights to lavish extravagant gifts on his children. His generosity is overwhelming. His benevolence cannot be outdone. So the Lord God creates man to work. But before he gives him work, in verse 15, God gives man this home. It's a beautiful home, an extravagant home. And the order here is important. You see, Moses is saying home isn't something merited or earned. It's not something that you achieve or accomplish. Home is something that God has given you as a gift. Why? Because he delights to lavish extravagant gifts on his children. But this home, this gift, it's also an invitation. One commentator says, God's placement of the man in the garden suggests that humanity is meant for fellowship in the garden with God, its creator and gardener. And that seems to be what we see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, where there's this regular rhythm, an implied rhythm of God walking with his children in the garden 
in the cool of the day. You see, the garden wasn't just an offer of a beautiful place. It was also the offer of a beautiful presence. It was an invitation for fellowship, an invitation to enter the joy of the Trinity, to enter the divine dance, to enter the beautiful community. Because, you know, home is never just a place, right? Home is where your people are. Home is about belonging and community and connection and fellowship. And on this Father's Day, home is about fellowship with your heavenly Father. Not a father who's abandoned you or abused you or hurt you. Not a father who couldn't meet your needs or pay the bills. Not a father who loved you but wasn't curious or felt distant. Not a father whose flaws and foibles have failed you. Not a father who's passed away and is no longer accessible. No, this home is about fellowship with our Heavenly Father who created all things out of nothing in the space of six days and is so proximate that he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life and who delights to lavish extravagant gifts on his children. And he's still calling to you today. Can you hear his invitation? He's saying, walk with me in the garden, in the cool of the day. You see, it's a beautiful home. Then thirdly, we have a defining command. A defining command in verses 16 and 17. The end of verse 15 takes an interesting turn. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and something else. And keep it. Right Now, we've already looked at work. That's man's purpose. It's what he was created for. But what does it mean to keep it, to keep this garden? Well, this word, uh, to keep, has a sense of to guard or to keep. Can I get that first, that next slide, Andre? And in Genesis 4, verse 9, there's this simple sense of guard, right, where Cain says to God, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And that word keeper there is this word for guard, to guard, or to keep. And then in Genesis 30, verse 31, Jacob says to Laban, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. The idea is he's guarding the flock. That's what keeping has a sense of here. But this word is more commonly used in keeping covenants and commands. Can I get that next slide? In Genesis 17, 9, God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall what? You shall keep my covenant. And then he says in Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, right? So this word keep is used for keeping covenants and commands. But it's also used, the next slide, Andre, for the responsibility of the Levites about guarding the temple. Numbers 1.53, and the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. And in Numbers 3, 7, and 8, it says they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation as they minister at the tabernacle. Verse 8, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Thank you, Andre. And by the way, 
the tabernacle, with all of the beauty and the lushness of the tabernacle, it was modeled after the Garden of Eden. So you have these three different senses of guard. To guard in the generic sense. To guard by keeping a command. And to guard the tabernacle. And so verse 15 becomes a hinge, right? When it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, it's looking backwards to the purpose for which man was created to work. But then when it says, and keep it, it's looking forward. It's looking forward to the task that man is about to be given. And here in this task, all three senses of that word to keep or to guard intersect. Man is to guard the garden. And how is he to guard the garden? By keeping the command, by keeping the covenant, and thereby protecting the place of God's presence, thereby protecting and guarding and keeping the sacred sanctuary. And that's what we get in verses 16 and 17. It's a command, and that command represents a covenant, which, when kept, will guard the sacred the sacred sanctuary, and will ensure fellowship with the Father. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You see, God begins here this command with freedom, with a bountiful provision, with the extravagant abundance of his fatherly care. He's saying, here's everything you could ever need. It's yours. You may freely eat. That's the context of the prohibition. Let's pause here before we get to verse 17. Look back at verse 9. In verse 9, there are two specific trees that are mentioned. The first is the tree of life. The second is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life here seems to represent something more than mere physical life, right? Because God has already breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. So to speak then of eternal life is a promise. And that's how Genesis 3.22 takes it. After the fall, uh, God says, uh, lest man reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and what? and live forever, right? It's the promise of eternal life. That's how it was in our call to worship in Revelation chapter 22 this morning. There's on either side of the river, in this city, along the street, there is this tree of life with abundant fruit, fruit for every season. It's the tree that symbolizes the promise of eternal life, right? And then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a symbol of the condition of covenant obedience. You see, the knowledge of good and evil has a sense of not just knowing, like assenting in fact, but knowledge in the sense of determining. Determining what is good and what is evil. And it's determining what is good and evil for you right? For you. So it's taking the place of God as the final 
arbiter of morality. I'm going to determine what is good and what is evil. Not God. I'm going to determine it for myself. Now I'll come back to verse 17. In verse 17, the command is simple and precise and clear. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And this isn't a command in isolation. It's a command in representation. This command represents the whole moral law because for Adam to commit murder or to commit adultery or to lie, he first would have had to determine that those things were good for him. Right? He would have had to determine his own morality. And so uh, here we see that that tree uh, is representing the entire covenant. And that command, that command comes with a consequence. It comes with an explanation. It gives a reason to obey. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so there are two ways that are laid out in covenantal form. This, by the way, is the covenant of works. It's saying if you obey, you receive covenant blessing, the covenant blessing of eternal life that's signified by the tree of life. But if you disobey, if you choose to determine what is good and evil for yourself, you will surely die. And man was supposed to guard the sanctuary by keeping the covenant, by obeying the command. You see, work isn't just about working the ground. It's also the work of fulfilling the covenant. And this work, this work would define the story of humanity. It defines our place in the world. It defines our relationship with God. You see, the origin of work is tied to the covenant of works. It's tied to meriting eternal life. And of course, Adam failed. He didn't obey the command and keep the covenant and guard the sanctuary. And as a result, all of mankind plunged into the fall and sin entered the world. Did you know that the way of the covenant of works is still out there? That someone who perfectly obeyed the command and kept the covenant could merit eternal life. And that covenant of works is hardwired into our DNA. It's right here at the beginning. It's part of the fabric of our soul. And did you know that this is why some of us can lean towards workaholism? That we can be defined by work. Mary Bell says that we can be achievement addicts, always trying to achieve the next thing to show that we're good enough to be okay. Why? Because we're still trying to merit something. We're still trying to earn our Father's favor. Chris Everett uh, was the best female uh, tennis player in the world. She had the greatest win-loss record in singles history in the 70s and the 80s. And as she contemplated retirement, she was petrified. And she said to an interviewer, 
She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was so depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Do y'all ever get the sense that your value, your worth, comes from your accomplishments? If we've accomplished a lot in a given day, we feel good about ourselves, but if we accomplish not as much as we hope, if we fail, right, we feel bad about ourselves. Why? Because deep down, deep down, we're still trying to merit eternal life. But here's the thing. While the way of the covenant of works is still open, since Adam's failure, since sin and death entered the world, we can no longer meet the requirement. Can I get the next slide, Andre? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer is that no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Thanks, Andre. But you see, there was another Adam. There was a second Adam. And he was no mere man. And Jesus also had purposeful work and a defining command. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. He says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And what was Jesus' work? His work was to obey the command and to keep the covenant and to guard the sanctuary. You see, he left his beautiful home to come to another garden. For Jesus, it wasn't the Garden of Eden with its luxurious abundance and extravagant wealth. It was the Garden of Gethsemane, which for Jesus was a garden of weeping and fear as Jesus came face to face with the cup of God's wrath. And there was another tree. Instead of the tree of life, it was a tree of death. It was a tree of cursing. And Jesus accomplished his work. And after facing the garden of Gethsemane, he hung on the tree of cursing. And he lost that perfect fellowship with the heavenly Father. And when his work was done, he cried out, it is finished. You see, he took the Garden of Gethsemane that we might have the Garden of Eden. He took the tree of cursing that we might have the tree of life. He took the eternal death that we merited that we might have the eternal life that he merited. And right now, right now, because of his resurrection, Rabbi Duncan would tell us that the dust of earth is sitting on the throne of heaven. And so Jesus... King Jesus says, walk with me in the garden in the cool of the day.
It is finished. And so, you can work. You can work. Because that is your good design. You see, God created us as works of art and gave us purposeful work, a beautiful home, and a defining command. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we think about the home that Jesus left and the work that he accomplished, may we find joy in the purpose of the work that you've given us while you tarry to return. And as we do the work here, may we long and hope for and expect and rejoice in the work that one day you will give to us in the new heavens and the new earth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.